Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we go behind the scenes on an art exhibit about being Black in Denver. And even my family members, when I visit, they're like, wow, Black folks are just so different here in Denver. I'm like, yeah, it's true. Plus, we learn more about an obscure sport that Coloradans loved to bet on in 2020. Those stories and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. This week, hundreds of teachers across northern Colorado received their first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. Bradford Lardner is an English teacher at Kennard Middle School in Fort Collins. He's relieved teachers were moved up in the state's distribution plan. Very excited to be able to get the, you know, the protection of the vaccine. Excited to see grandparents again have all my kids back in the room is super exciting. Just hope to get back to normal, you know, as quickly as possible. At this point in the vaccine rollout, most school districts are working with local hospitals to set up appointments for educators. Residents age 65 and older also became eligible this week. And as districts work to get educators vaccinated, schools across northern Colorado are slowly welcoming back students for full-time in-person instruction. Many districts along the Front Range have been staggering their return over the last several weeks. But others, especially in rural areas, have been fully in-person since fall. Carrie Ann Mathis is a career and technical education teacher at Middle Park High School in Granby. Jerry Rourke is a teacher for first graders with autism in Jefferson County. They're both joining us now to share what it's like to teach in person during the pandemic. Carrie Ann, I'd like to start with you. I understand that your school, Middle Park High, has been fully open since August of last year. When you first came back and saw your students, what was that like for you and for them? It was really great to see them in person, a little unsurreal with all the COVID protocols, but it was glad to see them back in person since in the spring of the school year before we had completely shut down and gone to distance learning. Tell us about the protective measures that your school has been keeping in place over all this time that's allowed you guys to stay in person. Different classrooms have different barriers up. We have masks that are provided. We have sanitation going on. Each week they come in and they do the fogging. In between each class, each student gets a towel with disinfectant. They wipe down their keyboard, their table, their mouse, and their desk. And then we have different cohorts and scheduling where the same kids can be quarantined together if they need instead of the whole school. And would you say at this point, after all these months that For the most part, students have kind of adopted these health measures into their day-to-day now. Um, Mask wearing and things like that, does that all seem pretty commonplace these days? The kids know that they do have to wear a mask. They don't fight it. It's really good. They actually wear them better than some tourists and community members do. You know, the mask over the nose. They come into the classroom. They hand sanitize. There is an option that if they wanted to do online learning completely, they can do that or they can be in person. We found about 30% of our kids had selected initially to do online learning. And then we are getting a handful of those back because they do want to be in person and they are following the rules. Why do you think it's important to be back in person working with students instead of online? 
For me, I know it has to do a lot with the social emotional learning as an advantage of students being in person for myself, the social emotional aspect of being around people. I do suffer from depression. And so I know that a lot of students have some mental health issues. And if you have depression or PTSD and you're kind of stuck in your house by yourself, it really starts to affect the mental health. So having the kids in school, in person, we can monitor them. A lot of kids don't have a good home life. This may be the only place that they do get a meal. So being able to come in and the teachers can control their space, I feel more safe being in a classroom than I do at the grocery store. So in that aspect, I do think that you know, it is beneficial for students to be in person. I know another piece of this puzzle is, of course, the vaccine and whether or not teachers and other school staff are going to get the vaccine has been a topic of discussion for months here in Colorado. Carrie Ann, as of this week, what do you know about whether or not you're going to get one? And what about some of the other folks at your school? We actually are getting scheduled this Friday. Teachers that wanted one, staff, paraprofessionals, we are getting the vaccine through our county health department. Let's use this to transition to Jerry. Jerry, I understand that you have already gotten the first dose of the vaccine and you've been in person for a while. How was the process of getting the vaccine like for you? It was pretty smooth. I was able to sign up online and schedule a time to go to the hospital. And it was very organized and uh, well orchestrated, I felt. And I was was so happy to be there. And you teach uh, students who have autism. How did remote learning work for you and and your students? And now that things are back in person, how are things going? Things are going pretty well. The students need somebody there to provide typically extra prompting. It's very difficult, if not sometimes impossible, to do that remotely. It definitely allows us to give them what they need to maximize their learning. It so happens that I'm currently in quarantine because we had a coworker who tested positive and we're scheduled to return next week. How is that affecting your work with students? Well, we're back to me providing remote services and supporting them as they're accessing Zoom meetings and trying to, within breakout rooms, provide them additional practice uh, or highlight the work as, as best we can. What do you think students with disabilities and, and teachers like yourself need to thrive during the pandemic? And are, are you getting it? Well, I think we're getting all that that can be provided for us. I think the district is is thoughtful about that. You know, for me, I still am concerned for my safety and the safety of the students. We have to be in proximity to them to be able to provide them these supports or to change a diaper or to uh, help them wash their hands properly. And it's it really comes down to, well, we have to do those things, but it puts us at risk. That was Carrie Ann Mathis, a career and technical education teacher at Middle Park High School in Granby, Colorado, and Jerry Rourke, a teacher who works with first graders with autism in Jefferson County. Colorado voters passed Proposition DD to legalize sports betting in 2019. When it became legal to start betting last May, though, hardly any professional sports were in play because of the pandemic. So sports gamblers turned their attention to an unlikely game, Russian table tennis. Even when sports like baseball, basketball, and soccer restarted, table tennis remained popular among gamblers. And by the end of 2020, it was the third most popular sport to bet on in the state. 
Here to explain the phenomenon is Westward sports journalist Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh. Connor, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. What do you think it is about table tennis that has been so appealing to so many sports bettors? Sports betting went live in May 2020 into this abyss of sports. You know, all the leagues had been put on pause, but what there was was all these new apps that were going live. And sports fans who kind of were itching to start betting on things. And so, you know, there was Belarusian soccer, Korean baseball, and then there was the Moscow Liga Pro, which is the, the Russian table tennis league that's on at crazy hours of the day. You can really tune into it anytime. And it was just something to bet on. The ball relative to the table size is moving very quickly. And so I think people just got hooked on it then and other sports have come back. But every month since sports betting has been legal in Colorado, table tennis has been in the top five for the most bet on sports. Did anyone anticipate that Russian table tennis would be this popular? I had never heard of anyone who was predicting that Russian table tennis was going to be popular. No one mentioned that. There are two kinds of sports bettors. There are the people who sports betting is a game of skill. And then there are the other people who sports betting is a game of chance. Most sports bettors like to think that they're skilled. But with table tennis, you're just kind of admitting like, this is a game of chance. I'm just going to see what happens. Are there any takeaways from this phenomenon for the betting industry? I think the biggest takeaway is that it's tough to know what people's preferences are going to be. I mean, no one knew how much people were going to place bets in Colorado. No one knew how much people were going to place bets on table tennis in Colorado. Legal sports betting hasn't been around very long throughout most of the U.S. This is just a perfect example of how many surprises there could be. I'm so curious, who are the people out there betting on table tennis? It's our understanding not everyone is willing to admit their newfound interest in the sport. Why is that? There's a word that sports bettors will sometimes identify themselves as, and that's a degenerate. Someone who just bets all the time and loves betting. It's maybe a a little bit embarrassing to say that you, you love sports betting so much that you bet on table tennis. I think it's kind of funny. And just from what you said, I mean, it's on maybe at all hours. So if you're up, you have insomnia. If you got a baby at home who's keeping you up, you can kind of rock them back to sleep while you're watching some Russian table tennis. That's Westward Sports journalist Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. Thank you. Although table tennis gamblers seemed hard to come by, we were able to connect with one man who's jumped on the new trend. Jackson Weger is a contributing writer for the media outlet Denver Sports Betting, and in his free time, he bets on Russian table tennis. Uh, Jackson, hi. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me on. What drew you and apparently so many other people to betting on table tennis? Back when Proposition uh, DD got passed here in Colorado, you know, all the major professional sports in America were shut down. One of the few options was table tennis and more specifically Russian table tennis. It was uh, a sport that was readily available for a lot of new bettors that were excited to bet and found ourselves betting on it kind of consistently as it is a sport that lasts throughout the entirety of the day. There's a lot of matches and a lot of people playing it. What is the process of betting on table tennis like? I mean, how is it different from betting on other sports? Table tennis has two sort of more unique things to it. And and the facts are that it's just simple. It's much more simple than betting, let's say, on a professional football game. There's not big point spreads, things that might confuse new bettors. You're just betting on one or the other guy to win the match. And the other thing is speed. 
matches can last only up to about eight or nine minutes at times. And so that exhilaration of consistently having to be on top of things, I think, uh, draws a lot of people to it and it makes it unique in the betting realm. Do you call a casino in, in Blackhawk or like how does that work? Everybody's betting on their phones right now. It's an app that you can download and, and you just have it right there on your phone and you can see the lines move consistently and you're just clicking away on your phone. Was this just a fluke due to the pandemic? Or do you think that table tennis will remain a popular sport to bet on in 2021? I think it was a fluke in the fact that when we had legalized sports betting come around, that was the only option. And it built this sort of base of people who, even when professional sports started to roar back, we had this loyal base of bettors that had already gotten into it and found it a lot of fun that stuck around. Now, going forward, I actually think as the world starts to reopen up a bit and you can go to sports bars and cheer on your teams and place bets at, at mobile kiosks, we might see it fade in 2021. But until then, since it's so easy to do on your phone, it will remain popular. Jackson Weger, thank you so much for talking with us today. Absolutely, Aaron. I appreciate your time. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Narkita Gold is a Denver artist. Her series Black in Denver features portraits and interviews highlighting the city's growing Black community. She started the project in 2018 as a way to share the diverse experiences and stories of Black residents, from those born and raised here to those freshly relocated. While the questions vary slightly, there are a few that show up in each interview. Who are you? What does it mean to you to be Black in Denver? And how have your experiences in Denver shaped you? KUNC's Amanda Andrews spoke with Gold about her visual ethnography and efforts to change the narrative for Denver's Black community. I was curious about what in Denver kind of led you to focus on disrupting that narrative. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. And, you know, in some places, Blackness can be pretty rigid as far as how we can actually explore ourselves and, and, and express ourselves. One of the first things I noticed when I moved here was just... The freedom of expression within the the Black diaspora, I was just like, this is interesting. Like I've never, and even my family members, when I visit, they're like, wow, Black folks are just so different here in Denver. Like, yeah, it's true. You know, that's one thing that I thought was really beautiful. And I really started to move into a space here, my evolution of self, where I just started to just like do me and express myself how I wanted to. And I found a sense of freedom in that. And once I realized that's where freedom was, it was just like, this is the answer, <laughs> you know, like, just do you. Who cares, like, what society tells us it means to be Black? Because we've been told for so long this is what it means, right? And I, I feel that we have attached to this, like, definition or this idea, right, that can at times be very limiting. Each of the subjects is photographed in front of either a green, blue, orange, pink, or yellow solid color background. What's the significance of those repeating colors, and how do you pick who to interview? You know, I it was planned, but it wasn't planned. But I knew that I, I eventually wanted to hang them, right? Like I wanted to hang the photo somewhere. And I knew that I wanted to explore the fact that we are so many different things. I wanted to explore the color spectrum. And then also, as I kind of got into it, I was like, oh, these colors are also like colors from African textiles that kind of like connect to our, our roots and our heritage, right? So there are this number of layers of the colors there's a, a spectrum. Every, and on my work, there will always be a spectrum. I'm always saying that, you know, we are so many different things. You can't fit us in a box. And as far as the, my participants, at first it started out with, I didn't know anyone here. 
I didn't have anything. I don't have any family. I don't have any connections. I didn't have a community. So that's one reason I actually started this was to actually just meet people, right? And also ask questions about this experience that I had. And I wanted to know if other Black people were having the same like experience. Like, what is this about? What is it like to be you here? So it started out with my yoga teacher, a friend of mine, and then some business owners that I knew. And I asked them, like, so who would you recommend? It went on from there. So paying it forward and then going in community and meeting people and hearing things. And something else that I noticed was there's a, there's a lot of healing happening here in Denver. A lot of people are just like finding out how to heal themselves from just trauma that comes with being Black, from police brutality, microaggressions, like the the residual effects of slavery and all of that. You know, there are lots of people who are doing intentional healing work. And I really got into um, that and started to like just meet healers and started to include them in the series because I'm all about healing and liberation. And those are two things that really like just resonated with me in my work. Given how painful this past year has been specifically for the Black community, how's that showing up in the series? I'm not speaking directly to what's happening, but I am so focused on healing in my work. If someone's talking about their spirituality and how it helped them find out who they are and heal themselves, if someone is talking about meditation and healing themselves, it's in there. And I've been pushing people lately to like, go and read the full interviews because there's something in there for you. And, and everyone has their own way of healing. I've found so many different ways. And I really hope that my reader will walk away with, oh, I'm going to try yoga or I'm going to try meditation or I'm going to try therapy, which is something with no, we know therapy within the black community is something that we just don't talk about, but like it can change your life. And I really want to break the stigma around these certain types of healing that, you know, is available to us. It's not just in Denver, it's everywhere. So I hope that whoever, no matter where you come in and read this work, that you can walk away with a new way to potentially heal yourself. This exhibition is focused on exploring questions of systemic injustice and suggesting avenues of moving towards solutions. So we've been talking a lot about healing. How do you think this series fits into the larger idea of creating a more thoughtful and inclusive community? I explore the question is like, what's next? When I saw the prompt, I was just thinking about, okay, this is where we are. And it's called From This Day Forward. Where are we moving towards? And one of the questions, so what am I I'm featuring is a word cloud. Um, and I asked all my participants, for most of them, um, to describe Denver in one word. And one of the words that came up the most was the word home. And I started asking myself, what, what is home? Where is that? Where is that for us? And I started thinking, well, you know, for me personally, home is within, right? Home is wherever I am. And I started thinking about, well, how did I get to that point? And for me, it was through yoga and meditation. And one thing that I remember seeing at the yoga and meditation centers were these prayer flags. Prayer flags are always within these spiritual centers and the yoga places where I go. And what I did is I created these prayer flags, black prayer flags. And the, the colors are from the series and they feature answers to my question, what does it mean to be you? So it's like really deep, introspective questions. So what I'm hoping to convey to my viewer is to go within, to obtain liberation and freedom and to heal yourself. So that's what I really ask myself is, where's home and how do I facilitate healing and liberation? 
Finally, I wanted to give you the opportunity to answer a question I've seen so many of your subjects answer in the series, which is, what does it mean to you to be Black in Denver, and how have your experiences in the city shaped you? Yeah, so I would have to say, to me, to be Black in Denver is, like I said, to find home within. And while I was in within, I really found the divinity that each and everyone has within us. And that divinity is who I truly am. And it's allowed me to also go within and heal myself and and address things that I haven't addressed in my whole life, right? And then also being proud and being proud to be a Black woman. Being here has made me so proud of my Blackness and just like, I'm going to be me to the fullest. I used to hide myself and try and like fit a mold And here I'm just like, no, I'm not going to do that. It's just to be myself unapologetically and to exist in spaces that sometimes I I feel I'm overlooked or looked at and to exist like with just not concerned with what people think, you know, just do my thing and exist and be happy and be at peace and not let the chaos of this world get to me. That's what it means to be me here. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it was so nice to meet you, Amanda. That was KUNC's Amanda Andrews speaking with artist Narkita Gold about her series Black in Denver, which will be on display at the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art through the end of May. The new movie Supernova shows two men together for 20 years, and one of them is failing. For KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, who teaches film and television at CU Denver, the film is gorgeous, which may not be all good. Supernova is far too beautiful, which is why it's hard to question it. Sam Colin Firth and Tusker Stanley Tucci are in their early 60s. They've been a couple for 20 years, and they're on a road trip in England heading north into Scotland. Sam, a pianist, has a concert coming, but the important reason for the trip is that Tusker, a novelist, is slowly descending into dementia, and the two men want to spend as much time together as they can in the most beautiful ways they can. And it's spectacular. Fall colors cascade through the countryside. As the pair drive along, the low hills get bigger and bigger, and even the steep places are covered in forest. And the roads get smaller and smaller. After a bit, the men see no other cars. They drive along graceful streams and camp on the shore of a mountain lake. No one else around. Sam's face looks grim with worry, but Tusker has plenty of life in him. There are occasional signs of Tusker's decline. He gets lost walking the dog. The buttons on a pullover shirt befuddle him. Yet he has plenty of intelligence and humor. They visit the house where Sam grew up. His sister lives there now, and Tusker has arranged with her to let him and Sam sleep in Sam's narrow childhood bed. And Sam tumbles to the floor. Come on, come on, come on. Come over here. Come here, come here. Yeah, we'll move over a bit. All right, all right. Come here, come here. I'll keep you. Come here, I'll be like a little little rail for you like kids have. There you go, bed rail. There we go. Is that better? Just give me some, I can't breathe. I was trying to stop you. Tucci and Firth are two of the best actors in the English-speaking world. They've got nerve and confidence. You see it in the deep tenderness when they joke or argue or snuggle together. When Sam, full of love and care, kisses Tusker's bald head. 
Supernova shows a relationship under dire stress, but it flips our expectations. Tusker, the dying man, is the stronger of the two. He's the one willing to look at what's coming, while Sam has lost his spunk under the weight of how he believes he has to care for Tusker. Tusker leaves his pills at home, Sam worries. Tusker says he did it deliberately and that they don't work anyway. Sam can't give up hoping that the pills will make a difference. Tusker and Sam are devoted to each other, but their conversation is like two boxers dodging and fainting. They're mired in the struggle between accepting what's inevitable and denying it. All this in a world of subtle gradations in color, the autumn yellows and browns outside giving way to evergreens as the altitude rises. Indoors, dark pinks slide into blues and dark blues into brown. Acting's a great mystery. Two actors pretend that the characters they play are real. And when the actors are good, like these two guys, we in the audience accept, at least for the moment, that it's real. Tucci and Firth are pretending feelings many of us might recognize and understand. And we're moved by the depth of feeling as Tusker and Firth see the life they adore fading away. It's not real, of course, no matter how lifelike it seems. The remarkable physical beauty of Supernova lulls us in, and so does the comfort of the lives these men still lead. They're successful artists. Sam's sister and family welcome them graciously. There's none of that long-held sibling resentment that fuels so many films. No old family skeletons to exhume. The family and friends are delighted to see Sam and Tusker. They comfort them. It's pretty wonderful, and we have to remind ourselves that it's dreamy wonderful and not much real-life wonderful. The level of privilege and plain good luck are over the top. I would wish this life on everyone, but it's fantasy. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mopshevitz. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll talk about a new malady gripping many of us these days, pandemic fatigue. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 